Nigel, did we ever have Arctic foxes in Ireland? Well, we did, but no Irish people ever saw them because it was so far back that it was before any people arrived in Ireland, in a very different Ireland, in a very different landscape, in a very different climate. During the cold spell that preceded the end of the last Ice Age, the Arctic fox roamed the land together with the prey species it depended on for food, the Norwegian and Greenland lemmings. In those far-off cold times, we had brown bear, Irish giant deer and spotted hyenas, all long gone now. But how do we know all this, given, as Nigel Monaghan, keeper of the Natural History Museum, says, there were no people here to see them? The only evidence we have is bones, and those are identified as parts of the skeleton, the Arctic fox, because it's slightly different to all of the other types of fox that we know. And they've been found in Irish caves. A lot of them were found about 100 years ago in the early 20th century when the first scientists were beginning to dig through the sediments in Irish caves to see, as a record of what had lived in Ireland, what animals could they find. So this box here contains the bones of Arctic foxes from Donnerail Cave. Yes. Now, how old are these? When were these animals walking about? Well, basically, the, the cave in Donnerail is one of our greatest assets in terms of an information source. We've found uh, quite a wide variety of species, including such unusual animals as woolly mammoth that you might explain uh, away as perhaps a typical Ice Age animal that you might expect to find, but also animals like hyenas. You might not realise there were hyenas in County Cork. Um, we've dated these various animals, including the Arctic fox, using radiocarbon dating, and that's allowed to us to work out from all this mixture and jumble of bones which animals were around when. And while the animals like the hyenas were around about 30,000 years ago or more, we know from the dates we've got from Arctic fox specifically that there uh, were reasonably common in the Irish landscape about 20,000 years ago. Now, what kind of weather would we have had then? Obviously, was the Ice Age still happening? Were we at the end of it, or was it beginning to be the end of it, or what were we like? Well, basically, the Ice Age, which we mostly believe as scientists, that we're still in the middle of the Ice Age. It's a series of cold periods and warmer periods, and some of those cold periods are so cold that in Ireland you had the entire country covered by ice, and there were very few animals and probably very few plants able to survive on that landscape. And there were other times where the weather was like it is today, and then some in between when it was, it was much more severe, but it was still a, a place that might have been a bit like Greenland or Iceland today, where you have animals and birds all year round, um, and the Arctic fox would have been in one of those colder periods, but not perhaps in, in the coldest of the cold. And the way we know in terms of the years ago how, the, how bad the weather was and what the cycles of climate were is that comes from other evidence in uh, drill cores in the ocean floors where you've got a steady rain of sediment and a number of clues within that give us an idea of what the global temperature in our part of the world was like so that we know that 20,000 years ago when Arctic fox were around that it was very, very cold. It would have been a bit like Greenland or Iceland today. And what would those Arctic foxes have been eating? Is there any remains of their food left? Basically, what we can do is we can look at in two lines of evidence which interact with each other. One is we can look at the other bones that we find that are about the same age and assume that those animals were in the same landscape. And the other thing is, with Arctic fox, they're not extinct. You find them in other parts of the world today. You can go and see what they get up to today and try to draw those inferences. And on the first tack... If you look at what Arctic fox overlaps with in our fossil evidence from Ireland, 
one of the key animals that crops up in many of the sites is an animal called a lemming, which is a little rodent, um, bigger than a mouse, around about a hamster size. And we had those in Ireland then. We did, yeah. We did. There are two species of them, and they would have been absolute regular dietary um, things for for a, a healthy Arctic fox. Just the same as today in Scandinavia, they still feed on lemmings. Yes, and lemmings... Um, grow in very rapidly. Anybody who's ever had mice in their house knows how quickly a couple of mice can turn into a lot of mice. Lemmings turn into very large numbers very quickly. It's a huge food source. And in years when it's been very successful for lemmings, Arctic foxes will grow in very large numbers and reproduce and be able to raise the next generation quickly. So then when we have, when you were looking at these bones that are 20,000 years old for Arctic foxes, there were no red foxes in Ireland at that time. As far as we know, we haven't found the evidence, we haven't found red fox bones in the caves that are of any great antiquity at all. So the red fox in the Irish landscape is much younger. It's maybe a few thousand years old, not the tens of thousands of years of the Arctic fox. forward to the 21st century and a December evening in our busy capital city of over one million inhabitants. The roads and the streets are noisy with traffic as people make their way home from work or set out for an evening's entertainment. The sky is artificially bright with orange neon street lighting and the lights of thousands of homes and cars. Hardly you would think a haven for wildlife that has good reason to fear mankind and is interfering ways. Yet, Not 50 metres from the bustling city life, in the numerous parks and open spaces, there is a parallel universe. The wildlife that goes about its business, apparently regardless of ever-present signs of humans, is out and about once darkness descends. There's an alarm. You see the the blackbirds just kicked off an alarm there. Now that's... the most widely distributed carnivore in the world we're looking at right now, the red fox. The most successful of our urban mammals, the fox, is already slinking about the parks that have just closed to the public, sniffing about in the hope of finding some tasty scraps and patrolling its territory with a proprietorial air. Wildlife artist and author Don Conroy has kept a keen and curious eye on the red fox since he was a child and knows a thing or two about them. See, it's moving in and out of the shadows. And it would have a little kind of path because its feet, as you know, have little scent glands on its feet and it can actually follow the trail. So it knows which way to go back if it wants to go back that way and also a little sign to other foxes. Now, the obvious scent glands are on its its anus (laughs) and its tail, but they do have them on the feet as well. A lot of people don't realise that. I still can't get over the fact for me, seeing something like this, a wild creature in a suburban setting. I know, the whole of the city is all yeah. around us with lights. And we really are in an urban setting. This is Deer Park, right up on the hill. And the whole of Dublin is stretched down below beneath us. Look at all those orange lights, all the streets. And over there to the right you can see the pigeon house chimneys twinkling away. We're right in the centre of the middle of Dublin. And yet, we can find foxes here. Well, Dublin definitely looks like a magnificent jewel tonight. And of course these trees here, you know, inking away to the sky there, they're like wonderful uh, Chinese paintings. So it's a breathtaking view here. 
and apart from the wonderful fox. And of course those houses down below where the fox will have been eating as well as up here in the wild looking for worms. He'll have been down there in their back gardens scavenging about, eating stuff that didn't make the bin properly or that fell out around it. Are they able to open wheelie bins do you think? Uh, that I'm not 100% sure about but but of course they are good climbers and I'm sure they, they'll certainly try if the smell is strong enough from the bins. I mean, many but the there's still enough people throwing stuff around the place. And how often do you see a wheelie bin anyway with the lid propped up that's so it's easy true. enough to get the stuff out of it. There's no loss on them, that's no. for sure. And it's amazing to think, look, when they come out at night time, sniff the air, look around, smell this and smell that, it's like reading the newspaper for them. They get all the information they need. And uh, as a result of that, they know whether there's a little mouse has been around. If the grass is very wet, they know the, the earthworms are going to come up. Uh, there might be a few beetles around the place. Or there might be a nice little snack that somebody threw away. <laughs> An old hamburger or something. Yes. But do you think they probably smell us as well? And they probably, probably don't interfere with them, really. No, the thing is, because they're so they're familiar with humans, uh, and we don't seem to bother them in... You in know. an urban setting, yeah, yeah. and vice versa, they don't bother us as well. So he's just sitting out among the trees. I can see him there, and he walks quite differently to a dog, doesn't he? They do. They they kind of they almost move like a cat. They have yeah. this lovely little gait as they they lope along. Now, winter time is a great time for foxes because it's a mating time. You have this female coming out and saying. Okay, guys. I'm all yours. And she gives this magnificent wild scream, you know. And every amorous male in the area wants to come, you know, to her. But it's it's fantastic uh, to hear that sound because it's so... Um, I mean, <coughs> blood-curdling is the only word for it. A fear was expressed when wheelie bins were introduced that the urban fox would starve to death as it wouldn't be able to open the bins as if every single item of the city's waste was going to be put tidily in a wheelie bin and the lid closed down. Chance to be a fine thing. Of course the foxes are still as abundant as ever. There's approximately between 150,000 to 200,000 foxes in Ireland. Zoologist David Wall has spent several years studying the red fox. So no better man to ask, what is a fox? You could think of it as a small dog. It's a member of the Canidae, um, including dogs, wolves, foxes, all those things we're familiar with. There's about 23 to 27 species of fox. Uh, it depends on whether you, you're a clumper or a splitter um, in terms of species. Uh, there's various different genus of fox. Uh, for example, there's fulpes, which are what's called the true foxes. There's 10 species of those, including our own red fox, fulpes, fulpes. Um, the Arctic fox would be in another genus. Um, however, depending on who you talk to, again, they reckon that Arctic foxes are so genetically similar to red foxes that they could be clumped together uh, within the vulpes uh, genus as well. But it's actually Alopex, isn't that the, that's is the genus of that at the minute? Yeah. So then in Ireland, in these latitudes, we have the red fox, which is common and widespread. And um, what are the conditions that a red fox needs to thrive and survive? Obviously, we have them in spades in Ireland, but what are they? Well, red foxes are what we call opportunistic omnivores. Um, They're generalists rather than specialists. So they'll eat a wide range of uh, food types, everything from insects to berries to small mammals, scavenged food. Uh, Their habitat requirements aren't generally limiting because all they need is somewhere safe to have a den or an earth and to rear the the litter. So food is generally their their restricting factor. And in places like Ireland, 
nice temperate climates. Food generally isn't that restricting. So there's plenty of grub around. There's rabbits, there's mice, there's in the cities, there's plenty of scraps, that kind of thing. Now, I want to ask you then about the overlap or the, the border between the red foxes of mainland Europe and the Arctic foxes. In, in Iceland, of course, they just have the Arctic fox. There's no red fox. And in Ireland, we just have the red fox and there's no Arctic fox. But there is a line across um, southern Scandinavia, northern Germany, where you would have the two. So how do they react? I mean, is one better at competing the other? Or what limits the red fox from going right the way up? What stops the Arctic fox from coming right the way down? Is it weather? Is it climate? Again, it, it depends who you talk to. I mean, if you look at the, the Arctic fox, there's a number of reasons given for why they're restricted to the areas they're restricted to. One is that they're specialists, well, they're, they're, they're adapted best to cold climes. Um, so as, as the area gets warmer, uh, that they're not as adapted to those areas. They are generalists, but they also, in inland areas, uh, for example, in Scandinavia, they'll specialise in feeding on small rodents. Whereas red foxes, if they're present in an area, again, will eat the whole gambit of food if it's available. However, Arctic foxes will also, in some cases, adapt. And, for example, in Greenland, where you have a lot of air bases and lots of rubbish surrounding it, uh, Arctic foxes will feed there and feed on scraps, etc. But on on the fringes, where you have red foxes in an area, generally they will outcompete the uh, smaller Arctic fox. What keeps the red fox further south is the cold. They're not adapted to very cold climates. They can't survive in kind of permafrost in areas of uh, heavy snow, that kind of thing. So climate dictates what the fauna of a region will be. Was it then global warming all those years ago that saw off the Arctic fox? Well, we know not just from the Arctic fox, but from some of the other animals in the cave remains that we've got, and that perhaps some of them are more abundant and they occur at several different time periods, that animals came into Ireland on at times when the climate was right for them. So Arctic fox were in Ireland when the climate was very, was quite cold and severe, but not a total whiteout um, landscape. And they w- the climate might have only suited them at certain periods. So they might have been around for maybe a thousand years and then migrated back as the climate belts of the Northern Hemisphere moved at the end of the Ice Age. So it was too hot for them or it was too cold for them? Which is it? Well, basically, this had to be just right for them, a bit like Goldilocks and her porridge. Um, a number of animals, if they are trying to compete with the red fox that is further south, it's a bigger, more robust animal. And in countries where you get both types of fox, they'll be separated by a band of climatic zone, where the Arctic fox is the expert in really vicious climates. They can survive incredibly low temperatures. They're great survivors in harsh climates. The red fox is a bit more comfortable in its living habits, but it makes a really good picking in a, in a rich landscape with lots of greenery and lots of animal life around. So they have a sort of natural climatic barrier that tends to separate them. But what I want to get clear so, from you is, Nigel, is did the Arctic fox become extinct all by itself? Was there a period where we had no foxes and then the red fox came at a warmer time? Was there a time in Ireland when we had none? No foxes, either Arctic or red? Based on the evidence we have in Ireland... Arctic fox became extinct locally because of climate change in a relatively short period of time. We know at certain times that the climate changed from one type of climate, uh, reasonably warm, into very cold within 500 years, which is a relatively short period of time. And Arctic foxes were wiped out, if you like, by climatic changes over periods of a few hundred years, perhaps. 
But as far as we know, there was no overlap with the two types of fox, the Arctic fox or the red fox in Ireland. But what would our Arctic fox be like if it had remained here to the present day? Animal species confined to large islands evolve in special ways. Our hares and stoats no longer go white in winter, although the same species do on mainland Europe and in Scotland. I needed to see one that was isolated for millennia on another large island. So off with me to Iceland, where there are Arctic fox aplenty. Iceland is a country of contrasts. Just below the Arctic Circle, it has a landscape of white glaciers and black lava, thundering waterfalls, hot thermal springs and geysers. Wow! That was some geyser. Must have gone up about 50 feet into the air. The Arctic fox is wonderfully adapted to its environment. Looking at it in winter, it has a beautiful, cuddly, thick white fur coat. Sitting beside its den in the snowy half-light of an Icelandic winter day, it is perfectly equipped to survive in these bleak surroundings. It has the most appealing-looking face, alert, pricked-up ears, intelligent, curious eyes, and it's small, about half the size of our red fox. It is unquestionably a fox, with its long, thick brush and pointed black nose. Professor Pal Hernstenson of the University of Iceland has spent many years studying the Arctic fox in Hornstrand Rear Nature Reserve. A recent study on the genetics of the Arctic fox show that it is quite distinct uh, and has been isolated from other Arctic fox populations for quite a long time. Right, so if we start off then, Iceland is an island that has never been connected to the mainland. Like Ireland, when we had the Ice Age, Ireland was actually part of mainland Europe and animals came to Ireland across a land bridge. But Iceland is an island that came up on the middle of the ocean and has never been connected to the mainland. So how did the fox ever get here? Well, uh, actually, Iceland used to be the bridge between uh, Europe Europe and America a few uh, 20, 30, 40 million years ago. Yes. But since the Ice Age, it has been an island. And since actually since 20 million years ago, it has been an island. And the fox wouldn't be 20 million years old, no, would it? No, it yeah. came here at the end of the Ice Age, about 10,000 uh, years ago. And we have long presumed that it came from Greenland originally. But the latest research suggests that actually it may be a relic of the last uh, mainland European Arctic fox who probably came from the British Isles then across the ice to Iceland. Uh, so it would have come across the ice. It would actually yes. have walked during the very, very cold time when there was the whole sea was frozen from one piece of land to another, from Greenland to Iceland or Iceland to Europe. Yes, the Arctic fox can travel very long distances out on the sea ice and... Um, uh, it is known to follow polar bears around and eat the scraps of seals that l they leave behind. And they've been seen 800 kilometers out on the sea ice of uh, North America. So there's no question that they could uh, travel across the ice to Iceland and then uh, be left here as the ice receded. As the ice receded. And then they never met any foxes again from other countries. So you have this population here in Iceland since the last ice age, untouched, if you like. That's true. There probably have been the occasional stray foxes arriving from Greenland, you know, and probably following polar bears around. We do get polar bears sometimes when the drift ice reaches yes. Iceland. But in general, the population has been isolated. 
since that length of time. Yes. And then we were looking at them before we came to visit you up in the animal garden and looking at it there in its beautiful white plume or white fur if you like so it goes white in the winter time the one we were looking at and it's a darker colour in the summer time well there are two colour morphs well, no, let's, let's look at the first one first yes. the one I'm speaking of now. the one you're speaking yes, of is, yeah. is white in winter and then grey is brown in summer and why does it change uh, it is yeah. a good camouflage uh, for the winter time to be white especially in inland areas where they would be feeding mostly on on, uh, on uh, ptarmigan and other birds that uh, would otherwise spot them on, this, on the snow. So you have a fox creeping up on something and if it's the same colour as the background, it will do very well. It so it's white in the winter because the background is white yes. and it is not white in the summer. But how does it know when to change and does it get the timing right? It doesn't always get the timing right. It doesn't know when to change. It is a genetic uh, part of their makeup. It's part of the genetic makeup. They they change. They, they molt to winter fur in the autumn, and the winter fur is white. And then they molt back into summer fur and spring, and the spring fur or the summer fur is dark. And is that stimulated by the length of day? Do you think? Yes, that is part of it. Uh, but uh, I don't think that will vary much actually from year to year, though. Uh, it, but it is stimulated, the hormones are stimulated by the, the change in day length. Yes. And temperature as well, does temperature come into it? No, not for the not for the timing of the molt. But it can affect the thickness of the fur. I see that they actually get. Yeah. Now, in the rest of Europe, when I was looking at this before I came, there are many, many Arctic foxes in Sweden and Scandinavia, and they feed on lemmings. Yes. Do you have lemmings here in Iceland? No, we have no lemmings at all. So what do the poor things eat? <laughs> the only rodent uh, that they could feed on is the um, long-tailed wood mouse, which you have in, in Britain or, and, and, and Ireland Apodemus. too. Yeah, we yes. do have them, yeah. Yes, but they're not an important part of the diet. They, uh, birds are the mainstay of the diet. Uh, around the coast, it is seabirds of various kinds. And inland, it is uh, migrant birds in the summertime, and then ptarmigan, snow buntings. And then also, in wintertime, they eat carcasses, which they cache in summertime. So they, they hide them away? They dig them? They hide them away, uh, not only bird carcasses, but also eggs. And then, then, of course, there would be uh, carcasses of, of, of sheep and, in the east of Iceland, reindeer, too. Um, and on the shore, they would find carcasses of seal, seals occasionally. And they also feed on invertebrates along the seashore. So they scavenge quite a bit, eating things that are already dead. Yes. They yeah. yeah, and they bury them and dig them up again. Yes. And that's what they feed on. And there's enough food for, for foxes, or is it a common mammal? It is getting, uh, the population has been on the increase now for 30 years. And we have a, a minimum population of about uh, between seven and 8,000 animals in autumn. So uh, the population has increased sixfold in 25 years. But still there's no evidence of uh, lack of food. The, we are beginning to see evidence of lack of, of territories in the west <coughs> of Iceland, but still no evidence of lack of food. Right, now we were speaking of this one that goes white in the winter and brown in the summertime and this lives in the central part of Iceland 
where it's inland, is that the case? Well, now, at the coast, presumably, you don't have as much snow, so you have another colour morph, have you? Yes, another one. there's another colour morph, the dark morph, which is dark brown throughout the year. It doesn't change. It doesn't change in colour. It does mould to winter fur and back to summer fur, but the winter fur is dark. And um, in spring, uh, as the sun stays longer on uh, above the horizon, they, they do bleach a lot. They become lighter in colour. And by the time the last remains of the winter fur disappear, they're almost white. So they, they just lose their color because of the bleaching effects of the sun. And these foxes are more common in coastal habitats. But of course, there is movement between inland and coastal. So we don't have a purely dark morph on the coast and purely white morph inland. But the proportions differ so that there is a higher proportion of dark foxes on the coast and a higher proportion of white foxes inland. And is there a noticeable difference between the amount of snow on the ground at the coast and snow on the ground in the interior? Well, surprisingly, uh, in some parts, uh, in some of the better coastal areas of Iceland, better for the foxes, the very fertile coastal regions, 95 to 99% of the territories of the foxes are actually covered in snow in the wintertime, just like inland. But it is that 1% of coastline that matters where they get most of their food. That, and that's what matters to them, that yeah, they are, have a good camouflage on the, on the shoreline, which doesn't freeze. So is that the same sort of thing, then, as we would see in Ireland with our stoats and our hares? There's no point in changing to white if you don't have snow on the ground long enough to make the camouflage worthwhile. That's right. It's the same, it's the same system, so to speak. Uh, as with the foxes as here. With the foxes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, the foxes that came here originally—did the two different morphs come, or is it only in Iceland that you have the two different color forms? The two different color morphs are found everywhere where the Arctic fox is, but the proportions vary enormously. The, thus, in the inland regions of, uh, in the tundras of North America and Siberia, well over ninety-nine percent of the foxes are turned white in winter. And and uh, well below one percent actually uh, stay blue or dark, but uh, in coastal regions of um, say Greenland, where there are no lemmings and therefore the foxes also feed a lot on the shore, you get a much higher proportion of of blue foxes or dark foxes. Yeah, actually. the ones that don't change color. Yeah. yeah. And similarly here in Iceland, the yes. same thing happens. But yeah. if you were to do a breeding experiment with a white one from inland and a coastal one that doesn't change colour, mm-hmm. is it a genetic trait? What will the offspring be like? Uh, it is a genetic trait, but it's, it's either or. So you don't have an, an intermediate form. Yes. And, and the dark morph is what we call dominant genetically. Yes. So that if it is homozygous or has, has yes. inherited the dark morph from both parents and then mates with a white one, all the offspring will be dark. Yes. But if the dark fox has in, inherited the white more from one parent and the dark, dark from the gene other, from yeah. the other, then half of its offspring, when it mates with the white fox, will be white and half will be so dark. So the white is actually a recessive one then, yeah, and the, 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 the uncommon one, the dark one, is the dominant one. Yes, genetically that's yeah. so. Yes. That's very strange, isn't it? I don't think so. No? <laughs> that, that's something that is less common. I mean, in places like Scandinavia, the dominant gene is only there in a very small proportion, and the recessive one is all over the place. Yes, uh, but you see, it is, it, is, it, is a, it is not dominant in any other respect that it dominates within the body to, to affect the colour. Yeah. So, so, so long as there is no selection against one morph or another, 
then the two morphs will stay in the same frequency even though one of them is is uh, dominant to the other. So it isn't like that the dominant morph is always becoming more common. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, because it's, it's the actual environment that controls it really rather than yes. anything I, else. I, yeah. if, if, for example, a, a dark fox is, is doing very badly at hunting in the snow, then it's less likely to have offspring or to survive. And then that affects the frequencies, but not the fact that the dark fox has a dominant uh, or the gene for the dark morph is dominant. So here in Iceland, then, there are no lemmings, and lemmings, of course, are extremely, have these high years and low years in other countries. Mm -hmm. So you don't, and presumably in Scandinavia, where you have a a big lemming year, this is very good for the Arctic foxes, and they do well. And in the bad lemming years, they do very poorly. Here in Iceland, presumably their food supply is more regular, so you don't get peaks and troughs Mm -hmm. in the population. Is that the case? That is the case, and this has affected the reproductive biology of the foxes enormously such that in in the lemming areas, they really need to uh, take advantage of the years when there are plenty of lemmings, and they are very fertile. They can have 10 to 12 offspring easily and raise them all successfully, so long as there are lots of lemmings. But then in the years between, as you said, no offspring will be raised. In Iceland, the food supply is very stable from year to year, and because it's so diverse, they feed on so many different species, even though one food species goes down, then they can switch to another. And the result of this is that uh, they, they, the fertility has gone down. The Icelandic Arctic fox is about half as fertile as the uh, tundra foxes in Siberia and North where America, the are, yeah. where the lemmings are. And but, but they do the job better. They have a small amount every year that work, rather than a whole yes. lot one year and none for years after. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's bec- because, the, because of the staple food situation, you don't have fluctuations, such, such enormous fluctuations in, in, in fox numbers, which means that uh, throughout most of, of, of the history of the fox in Iceland, most of the country has been fully occupied by foxes. So the important thing is not how many cubs you have, but how well your cubs do once they leave home. Yeah. And therefore they put all more effort into, into providing well, and, and making their offspring competitive rather than having lots of offspring. Yes, so they uh, have to find somewhere to live, marry right. in, have children, get, get, get established. Get, that's get right. it. The interesting thing is that um, if you look at the number of teats on the Arctic fox in Iceland... This is for feeding the babies. Yes, yeah. they, they have 12 to 17 teats, just like the foxes in the lemming areas, which tells us that uh, the Icelandic Arctic fox originally came from a lemming area but has adapted its reproduction to the food situation, while the number of teats has not changed or changed very little. Some of them are blanks. They don't work because they don't have enough babies for them. Well, they all work to begin with, and yes. then the, num- the numbers that are being used go down soon. Yes. But that suggests that, that uh, there has been no real selection against having many teats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that didn't make a difference. No. Well, now they're here in Iceland. Then the, the Arctic fox, the only native mammal, have they any enemies themselves in the food chains here? Where do they fit in? Are they at the top of the food chain, or do some, does something eat them? They are at the top of the food chain here. Uh, they, they really only have one enemy, and that is man. Uh, we don't have golden eagles, which occasionally take um, Arctic foxes in Scandinavia, for example. The sea eagle, which we have, uh, is not very good at uh, catching mammals on land um, so, so it doesn't really count as a predator not really no yeah so man well why why do man why do people in iceland predate on foxes 
if they're so shy and they don't do any harm to humans? Well, um, uh, throughout most of the uh, history of man in Iceland, uh, uh, sheep husbandry practices were different from what they are now in that um, the the sheep uh, had their lambs outdoors in in the open. And, uh, of course, the smell of afterbirth would attract foxes. And the difference between afterbirth and a newly born lamb, uh, especially if the mother is still having the second lamb, it's not all that great. So carrying off a newly born lamb is not, not difficult for, for a fox. So, and in the wintertime, when people did rely a lot on grazing, uh, you of, it often happened that there was a certain snowstorm, uh, the sheep got stuck in snow, and then the foxes would eat them alive. Eat the sheep, the whole, eat, not the, just the lambs, the big sheep. The sheep. Even though the, the sheep is much bigger than the fox. Yeah, but the sheep would be stuck in the snow and not be able to uh, run away or defend itself. And the, the, the fox would just regard the sheep as, as um, a good... Piece of meat, yeah. Yes. And the, the fox, Arctic fox, being originally a specialised small mammal and small bird predator, is not well adapted to killing uh, sheep, a, sheep yeah, at yeah. all. So uh, they have difficulty killing sheep, but they sometimes uh, do. If they start off by killing young lambs, they can graduate to killing larger lambs. Yeah, they, they get and the taste so, for it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, or, yes. It's, a, it's, it's a big chunk of meat, you know, if you kill a lamb. That is, uh, I mean, a lamb is the same size of, as the fox when, when the lamb is born. Yes. So uh, a few weeks later, the lamb is a lot of food. So if, if a fox uh, graduates to killing larger lambs, then it will probably continue to do that. And this is the reason why uh, so much effort has been put into fox hunting in, through the centuries. It's because of damage to lamb, to the, to the farmers. And is this effective? If, you, if, as you say, the populations of foxes here in Iceland are really restricted by the amount of territory they have. If you kill foxes over here, surely the ones over there will see the vacant territory and move in. Will it be effective in reducing population numbers? No, not really in controlling the population numbers uh, so long as there's plenty of food about. But uh, if you do kill a fox that has graduated to killing lambs, lambs, then, you, of course, you alleviate that problem. Yes, you got rid of the rogue fox, as yes. it were. Yeah. And we, we have very good records of fox hunting for the last uh, almost 50 years now. And uh, we can see that fox numbers went down for the first 20 or 30 years. Uh, and at that time, uh, because we have these numbers of the number of cubs killed at dens, the number of dens, occupied dens found, we can see that the fertility of the fox was lower during the, at the beginning of this period. And then uh, it appears that fox hunting was just enough to actually depress their numbers. But as soon as, as the population of foxes was down, uh, fertility went up a little bit. Ah, yes. Yeah. So 10%, 10-15%. And that was, that was enough reacted, for, the, yeah, for the fox to, to react. Fill, to fill the gap again. But in the meantime, surprisingly enough, fertility has not gone down again, as yes, we would it expect. Stayed high, it though, stayed yeah. high. And, and um, the main reason for this, I believe, is that we have had... Um, enormous increases in some of the m- most important food uh, or prey species of the fox. The, the fulmer, uh, which is seabird, sea yeah. their numbers have increased enormously and the distribution range has increased. They're now they're only there in the summertime. 
No, they start coming to the cliffs in February, so long as the cliffs are free of ice, yeah. to, 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 uh, to uh, ensure their territory, or nesting, nesting yeah. territory. And they're nesting up to 50 kilometers inland now, surprisingly. Farmers are, are yes. they really? Yeah. yeah. And then how long did they set up territory, they lay the eggs, they hatch them out, they go back to sea. So that could be three, four months? Yes, until August. About yeah. August, the, the, the chicks start leaving the nests, <clears throat> and they are very heavy. And they have to get to the sea, and many of them don't make it. And they are full of fat and very good food for the foxes. In Ireland, the red fox loses its wariness in an urban setting. In rural areas, it seems to understand very well that it's not wanted around habitations, and it steals into hen houses very quietly and craftily. But such wiliness seems to be abandoned by the urban foxes, who brazenly stroll through front gardens in the full view of the milkman, the paperman and early morning revellers returning home. This is not so, however, in Iceland, where the Arctic foxes give Reykjavik a wide berth. John Balder is a naturalist who runs a company called Isofold Travel. He specialises in taking small and large groups on wildlife tours in Iceland. It uh, is uh, white in winter, of course, to cope with the snow and uh, to be able to hide and in summertime it turns then uh, bluish grey and also hard to find it then but uh, it's only part of the reason why we uh, have a hard time seeing this creature in the landscape or in the nature here in Iceland. The other reason is that it's quite a shy animal. It does not show up, uh, not, not, not in towns, not in uh, inhabited areas. This is quite different to Ireland. In Ireland, the easiest place to see the red fox is in the cities, where it comes into town, rummages in the dustbins and lives in urban gardens. Not the case in Reykjavik with the Arctic fox, obviously. I guess the Arctic fox is totally uh, another... Uh, origin uh, and 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 uh, differently minded uh, because uh, the Arctic fox was actually the only animal here in Iceland, the mammal that was already here as Iceland was settled uh, some uh, eleven hundred years ago. So when people came to Iceland, the Arctic fox was here. It came under its own steam. It wasn't brought by people. No, uh, uh, therefore I consider the Arctic fox the master of the of the of the mammals of Iceland or the, even the animals of Iceland. Actually. The Arctic fox is one of the creatures, one of the animals on, on the earth that can stand uh, the most frost, the coldest climate, down to to uh, minus seventy degrees. It really? can hold out, yeah, not, not yeah, that is yeah in, in, a, in a calm weather, it can. The Arctic fox may have become extinct in Ireland some twenty thousand years ago, but that doesn't mean they're all gone. There are three of them in the care of zookeeper Jerry Crichton and his colleagues in Dublin Zoo. And if you look at these Arctic foxes, you can see the complete difference to our own fox here that we have, the urban fox or, or the fox in, in Ireland. Uh, they're much more insulated and, and they've got a much denser and thicker coat. The ears are very much smaller than our own fox. The eyesight, the eyes are all smaller and in general overall their body weight would only be three to four kilos. So they're, they're very, very similar in movement and in smell, but uh, the physical characteristics that the Arctic fox has is much more for the winter and a very severe winter uh, adaptations. 
They also did the name, the, 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 in their Latin name, which is Lagomorph, which people would normally associate with rabbit or hare. Their feet are designed very similar to a rabbit or hare. And they have insulating all through the pad, which allows t- two reasons. One, it gives traction on snow and ice, and it also stops from uh, cold from in- coming up through the body. And they have a very unique ability to control the blood flow through their legs, which helps maintain an overall body temperature. So they're quite amazing uh, animals. We hear a lot these days about climate change, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Ireland will get warmer and warmer. There is a real possibility that the Gulf Stream may be switched off and our climate will become as cold as that of Newfoundland. So maybe, like Goldilocks porridge, it will become just right for the return of the Arctic fox.